I think up until that point, it wasn't about art as a career. It was just about creating energy, being on the street, being wild and carefree, and just sort of almost making a name for our crew. Like to me, it was really important to bridge queer culture, skating, and graffiti. I'm William Van Meter, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. February 2023 was the 20th anniversary of photographer Ryan McGinley's The Kids Are All Right at the Whitney Museum of Art. It wasn't just the latest downtown meets uptown youthquake salvo that reverberated in the art world, but a photo exhibition that made him a bona fide post-millennial star and shifted the culture. At that time, the Whitney was still in its Upper East Side location and The Kids Are All Right was the most talked about photo show at the museum since Nan Golden's I'll Be Your Mirror in 1996. Overnight, McGinley became the superstar art photographer of his generation documenting his decadent world. After him, this bohemian lineage basically slammed shut with the onset of social media. The photo critic Vincelletti reviewed the show for The New Yorker. And when I compared him to Nan Golden and Larry Clark, the obvious, you know, forebears for this kind of very personal work. But at the same time, it seemed very different from them. He was doing something more spontaneous, less arty, and more fresh and rude. I was definitely impressed. But at the same time, I thought, where is it going to go from here? How do you follow this up? Debuting your first big show at the Whitney, this is a dangerous thing to do for an artist. Sylvia Wolfe was the head of the Department of Photography at the Whitney from 1990 until 2004. She curated The Kids Are All Right and took a chance on the unknown 24-year-old. He's not the first photographer to focus his camera on his own generation. Certainly Larry Clark did so in 1971 with images of teenage drug addicts that became the seminal book Tulsa. Nan Golden, of course, photographed her own friends and lovers on the Lower East Side. Wolfgang Tillmans, who we know well and who's been recently celebrated with a seminal show at MoMA. I knew about this kind of turning the camera and photographing from the inside out. What I saw with Ryan was an energy and a joy and a generation that was growing up understanding that they were making images themselves of themselves, rather than the earlier generations that didn't have social media and a way of being raised to be makers of your own image. The show encapsulated an era, but Ryan wasn't a voyeur. He actually participated in the chaos. His life and art blended into one another. We were in the East Village, you know? We were out writing graffiti all night in subway tunnels, like on drugs. There was no scope of what that meant. The Whitney was also uptown. Like, I didn't step foot above 14th Street. The images also give a window into the development of the next generation of art world upstarts. Dash Snow, Dan Colon, and Kunle Martins, a.k.a. Earsnot. I think up until that point, it wasn't about art as a career. It was just about creating energy, being on the street, being wild and carefree, and just sort of almost 
making a name for our crew. Like to me, it was really important to bridge queer culture, skating, and graffiti. I knew at that time that that was my lane. And I knew that as an artist, if you want to be recognized as a successful artist, you have to be able to do something that people haven't seen. And I feel like at that time, those three subcultures had not converged. And that's where my audience was. And the people that were interested in my photographs were writing about those things being new in a post-AIDS landscape. And that these two subcultures that were considered very homophobic were actually being infiltrated by queer kids, which is basically me and Kunle. <laughs> but all it takes is two. The images capture an interesting moment of downsizing in downtown. Rock was resurging and the techno kids got into electro clash. The bridge and tunnel hadn't been reversed yet. Basically, the scene switched from ecstasy and K to beer and coke. There was a small town vibe to the Lower East Side, as well as an emptiness and expansiveness. Walking home in winter, it felt like no man's land. Cab drivers wouldn't know how to get to East Broadway. There weren't lines around the block for anything, and people hung out at smaller bars like Max Fish. Nights would often begin at the dive bar Cherry Tavern on 6th Street, where different factions would meet. This is probably where I met Ryan for the first time. Our social circles had many overlaps. He always had a camera around his neck, and no, he never took my picture, not once. Ryan's apartment was around the corner. His place was equal parts flophouse, gallery, and social nexus. I moved to the East Village, to 7th Street between 1st and A, and that's really when my photography started to pick up. And I was photographing every day, maybe like five to 10 rolls a day. And I was out, I think my hours were nine to five, but like 9 p.m. to 5 a.m. There was the most iconic gay bar crawl in the East Village in the late 90s and early 2000s. 14th Street was Nowhere Bar. 13th Street was the Phoenix. 12th Street was the Cock. 11th Street was the Starlight. 6th Street was Wonder Bar, and I see guys, I period, C period guys, the best name for a gay bar ever. And 4th Street was the Boiler Room. And then maybe a little bit later, 2nd Street was the Hole. And I photographed every inch of it. My apartment on 7th Street became a flop house. It was a railroad apartment that went from 7th Street all the way to 6th Street, but very narrow. And basically everybody from the Iraq crew was sleeping there. Dashno was sleeping there. Other artists that I was friends with, Dan Colin was living there. Musicians. And basically when anybody came in, I would take their Polaroid. And that was like a practice that I did on a daily basis. I guess it kind of like kept the wheel greased. It was so easy and informal, just like you walk through the door, stand up against the white wall, I'm going to take your Polaroid. And I would write the date and 
the time on the back of each Polaroid. And then I started to stick them on my wall. And those 10 Polaroids became 50, 50 became 200, 200 became 1,000. And then over the course of five years, I think I probably shot like 7,000 Polaroids. And it went from my bedroom out into the hallway and kind of almost into the kitchen. It just became like this really fun thing. And we would just hang out there and everyone would party there and people would sleep there. It was around this time that Ryan met Mark Hunley. Mark Hunley was my first boyfriend and we stayed together for uh, almost a decade. We had a few iterations of our relationship navigating it, but I think that once I met somebody, just the fear of AIDS and being sexual in New York was so scary to me that when I met Mark, I just latched on. He was my muse. I just wanted to photograph him all the time and it annoyed him to no end to be in front of my lens and have basically me practice taking photos on him. But he also secretly liked it. There was a lot of love in the photos and he came from a modeling background. He moved to New York in 1993 or four. Mark still lives in the same Williamsburg apartment since 1993. He and his twin brother Ian's first modeling gig was bookending Linda Evangelista for a Stephen Mizell Vogue shoot. They retired after a brief career of copious editorial work and zero ad jobs. Mark has vivid memories from that time. It was like a jungle gym. And you go all over the place. At the same time, you'd be going to clubs and listening to like house music. You would be like in the East Village and you were a punk rocker. And then you would go to the West Side and go to Squeezebox. Just different types of things. You would do all of it. Yeah, you would hop from subculture to subculture within yeah. a week. You could go to the Jungle Party totally. on Tuesday and then go to the Plus Rock, it was rock like, Party on Wednesday. Yeah, same time as like Giant Step, which was more soul. You could go there. At the same time, you would go to Williamsburg to a Jungle Party at a place with video games everywhere in someone's loft. And they'd be playing like a projection of Street Fighter. <laughs> <laughs> and so there were different circles. There was a fashion circle that we had come from. There was an art world kind of art student kind of circle in Williamsburg. And then I met Ryan, and that was a different sort of graffiti, skateboard kid, art school in a different kind of way. It was like Dan Colin, Ryan, Dashno, this group of kids. And I was sort of like, I'm used to either gentle art world kids <laughs> or like club kids or gay people, but the wearing fronts kind of bad boy, you know, I wasn't used to it so much. So it took a little getting used to hanging around those guys, but I really liked them all. So it was really easy, but I think for everyone else who weren't having sex with one of them, <laughs> you don't have to like learn to love them. My other friends were like, whoa, okay. Cause they were blunt rolling hip hop, sopranos watching, kids from New Jersey. It's the same fucking way, because I'd be like, oh, I'm going to hang out with you and Ryan or whatever, but Dash makes no sense. Those other people are scary. <laughs> but it was at the time is that like the gays and straights didn't really overlap like that. They didn't so much, yeah. It was heightened because of the HIV thing. You know, it was still in the early 90s and mid-90s. And I met Ryan in 99, so it was like different. But I don't know, they just didn't overlap that way. Graffiti people and skateboarders did not like gay people. Like, I think the cool ones in New York did. That's why they were probably in New York. They thought gay people were cool, you know, in sometimes an annoying way. But they used to all go to the cock. 
But even the gays would be scared to go to Supreme and stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, totally, totally. I didn't feel comfortable a lot of the time. But since I was rolling with Ryan and Teddy, his friend, and Dan, and they were sort of like bold, and they were using the city like a jungle gym too. Riding around on bikes, going to this, you'd bump into someone that would take you on some adventure somewhere, and you were seemingly always out. Ryan's social circle was vast, but he was selective with whom he would shoot. Only certain exuberant figures appear again and again in the photos. Mark learned who the players were. Dan Colon. So he had come from RISD. It was funny because he and Ryan were friends. I don't know where they met, maybe in New York, but they're both from New Jersey. He was doing painting, you know, same ambition. Then there's Teddy Liliakis, who was going to school for finance, I think, or some business thing, and it was his roommate. And they knew each other from Fort Lee, New Jersey. We went to high school together. And Teddy was like the financial bro. I would walk into the apartment. He'd be sitting on the couch, rolling a blunt, maybe with a lot of coke, <laughs> watching The Sopranos on a huge television that was too close to the couch. And then I'd sit down with him, do all those things. <laughs> Have a panic attack watching Sopranos and then go into Ryan's room. <laughs> and so he took a lot of pictures of Teddy. Teddy really helped him. He was, like funded a lot of things and he was very sort of supportive. Then there was Leo Fitzpatrick, who I don't know if he met skating in New York, because I think a lot of people he met skating, like Harold Hunter and all those people. So Leo was an actor in Kids. That was another thing. They knew who those people were before the blogs and everything. They knew, like, Chloe, all that stuff. They didn't really know about the clubs, I think. They probably had heard of them and seen them in movies. But Leo, they had his number, you know. <laughs> but they were all good friends. And then Dash. Kenneth Capello, who's a photographer. He's not really in the images. There were a few early ones, but he was just around, and he was another person with a camera taking the picture at the same time. So the same with Michelle Cortez, who went to school with Ryan. She'd be standing there. They were all sort of like taking pictures, doing the thing, sort of being competitive with each other. Um, but it was like all very heightened, and everyone was having so much fun that I think that overweighed the competition. Donald Cummings... I don't know how they met, but I think it was probably out and about. And he was interested in making music, I think. And I think he was young and he was interested in writing and maybe making films. And then he was in bands. The Virgins was his band. That was the same time as The Strokes and all that stuff. There was Sammy. Sammy was from Staten Island. And he was a very New York kid. Super authentic New York skateboarder graffiti person. A lot of these people were graffiti, like Nate, Nate Smith, the straight guy who worked at the hole as a bartender. And he was a graffiti guy. So that was the dash, neck face, ear snot. Kunle was a major person in Ryan's life because they were both gay. He was a respected graffiti writer and I think a good one. And he was very tough, very New York. Iraq, the graffiti group he was with. Iraq meaning Iraq clothes. I steal clothes, which is gay slang. So it was really Kunle because he's a very creative person. He was such a good, I think, brother for Ryan. And he was such a sweetheart. And then Lizzie was around, Lizzie McChesney. And she was very beautiful, you know, like a little sissy spacek or something like that. Mark is in so many of the Kids Are All Right era images. Possibly the most iconic is the one where he's passed out in an elevator. My brother Ian used to work at Bowery Bar. And so Eric Good, the f now director, I guess, 
he was his assistant. So we were at his house on Bleecker and very drunk and high probably. And outside the elevator, I threw up everywhere. <laughs> then the elevator opened. We kind of went in. I leaned against the wall. And then we left, blindly, blindly wasted. You Were know? you aware that he was taking a photo of you at the time? I probably wasn't, maybe. Like, it was pretty common. You start not noticing the camera out. Because plus, at the same time as I'm hanging out with Ryan and meeting Ryan's friends, a lot of them being photo students at Parsons. So we would all go out, and they were all photographer students. They were all kind of influenced by the generation a little bit older, which was Terry Richardson. So they all had a T4 camera and they were all like, someone falls down drunk and there's like four people with their cameras out taking the same picture. <laughs> and so it was sort of like that. And so I got used to the camera and I probably was a little bit used to cameras and being in front of them for modeling. But at some point it got too much. I'm like, no, no. Because there's always a tiny little bit of direction. It's not just throw your camera out and take the picture. There's like, oh, could you move over a little bit? <laughs> so it gets a little bit much. So there is a little bit of composition in these. A tiny bit. I think the early stuff, actually not, because it was too wild and we were out and about. But he probably would be like, oh, take a drag of your cigarette, click. You know, because you knew it would be more interesting. Graffiti, skating, sex, drugs, rock and roll. All of this was being captured. But Ryan's photographs also display equal parts homoeroticism and skate bro posturing. As subtext, the images also harness an emotional awareness of the tail end of the sex equals death era of AIDS. It was something Ryan was intimate with, but rarely spoke of. So I'm the youngest of eight children, and my mom had seven kids in seven years, and then she had me 11 years later. So growing up, I was raised by basically five boys and two girls. There always seems to be six, seven, eight of us hanging out at a time. You know, as a young child, it was nice to be able to just watch everybody and study them. They're all so much older than me, and everybody had such different personalities. You know, there was somebody in the military, a nurse, a teacher, a Wall Street person, a stoner, a queer theater queen. And I think just as a child, I was just taking it all in. Like, I didn't have to say much. I could just sort of be a fly on the wall and just kind of watch it all go down. And, you know, as a photographer, that's so nice to be able to be around the action and then just kind of documenting it. Of all of Ryan's siblings, one brother would have a resounding influence on his art and life. My brother Michael was my queer sibling, and ever since I can remember, he was out of the closet. He was in New York City. He had boyfriends, and that was like my first venturing into New York, where I was like allowed to go on my own. He would pick me up. I would hang out with him and his boyfriend, and it was just like, really fun. As a kid, his boyfriend was a Barbra Streisand impersonator professionally, so they were very flamboyant, just exciting to be around. They knew about art of the time, and I just remember sort of names floating around like Keith Haring or Kenny Scharf or John Sex, and then they were very much like line queens, so it was all about Barbara 
Bette Midler, Judy Garland, Diana Ross. And that was my queer education. He was not kicked out of the house, but religion definitely dominated my house. And he left the day he turned 18, basically. I think that he just wasn't made for the suburbs. And when he graduated high school, he was just out and he was onto his queer city life and, you know, finding community that supported him. And it was the 80s and he was just gallivanting and kind of having the time of his life. At a certain point, he contracted HIV and, you know, the story after that, you know, it's just, it was kind of before AZT, before protease inhibitors. And I just remember being young and having the conversation float around the house like that he was sick. And I guess through the course of about five years, his sickness got worse, then it got better, then it got worse, then it got better. And, you know, he returned home a few times and then went back to the city and then came back home. Medicine became like a part of my vocabulary. Lots of different alternative techniques, you know, and a lot of religions too. Like he became Buddhist for a while. Then, you know, we were on the hunt for like eating shark skin, just like very strange things that, you know, he had heard about from different doctors, crystals. It was really like my mom, my dad, and me. And my mom was like, it was sort of her mission to take care of him. And there was just like dark stuff, suicide attempts, fear of disease, blood. There wasn't much information, you know, obviously there was no internet or anything like that. So you're just relying on like books and newsletters and word of mouth. And so how old were you when he died? I think I was 16 when he passed away. That year was, I think it was rough because I knew in my soul that I was also gay. And I think those two forces colliding of my brother passing away and me starting to come into my queerness but not wanting to share that with anybody because I was just basically so scared that what happened to him what happened to me so I really just buried that and I didn't share it with anybody there's a sense of extended family and community that really shapes this first body of work and is in fact a through line in the entirety of Ryan's career. I guess thinking back, like my earliest in air quotes photographs were like the skate films that I made. I was always the kid who had the digital camera with a fisheye lens and I'd always be following my friends around and filming them like doing hijinks and just stupid stuff and then make little skate videos that my friends would send off to skate shops to try to get sponsored. I think for me, that was like my entrance into visuals and also like people's personalities. And I tended to just like to film people just hanging out more than actually doing the tricks. I was really into reality TV, like MTV's real world. It had a like huge impact on me. 
I guess I could say now that I was trying to get some kind of like cinema verite or something like that of, you know, my skater friends just being themselves. And then I picked up a camera, I would say a few years later, probably about the end of 1998. There was a skater camera called the Yashica T4. It's kind of like a cult camera now. Although he was studying graphic design at Parsons, it wasn't long before photography started taking over his whole life. At the end of 1998, I started taking photos in a very compulsive, addictive way. I just couldn't not do it. And I started to realize that I could create my own world. And I had seen other photographers create their worlds. At the time, the books that I was looking at, there was a book about graffiti that this photographer, Henry Chalfont, did. There was a documentary and a book called Streetwise that Mary Ellen Mark had made. Jack Pearson had a book called All of a Sudden. I was taking in photography probably like all through early 1998. And there was a few moments that were really important to me. One was a photographer named Ellen Jong. She did this series where she would photograph herself peeing and kind of shoot the pee through her legs. And it was just really cool and, and beautiful. And I think it was called Peas on Earth. And she took a photo of me at a party and it ended up in Zing magazine, which was like a art magazine around that time. And in my mind, I just thought it was unbelievable that somebody took a photo of me at a party and it ended up in a magazine. And it just was so cool. And it just showed that there was possibility. While Ryan was still a student at Parsons, he met several key mentors who helped him develop his vision. There was a teacher there that took a lot of interest in me. He saw my test strips and hunted me down and asked the students who I was. And his name was George Pitts. And he taught this class called Nudity, Sexuality, and Beauty in Photography. He taught it in the back office of Vibe magazine. So you would go through the big light boxes of Mary J. Blige and Jay-Z, and you'd walk through the doors, and then you'd go to this back office, and George would teach us about Helma Newton and Claude Cahoon and Roxy Music and Brian Eno. And it was just like this really gorgeous class that had a huge influence on me. And George was a huge mentor. Ryan had assembled a pseudo-Warholian ensemble and the scene had coalesced around him. Mark sensed some kind of overall narrative forming in the pictures. It's a tight thing, so you feel like you're following the storyline, which is what is so interesting about those photos. There's a storyline, and this is part of the storyline, you wonder what the story is. Oh, there they are again. Those two know each other. And at the same time, the blogs were happening. It was epically latered, Pat O'Dell, and then Teenage Unicorn, Amy Kellner. And so the Teenage Unicorn, everyone started to see Sway. They would see Motor City. They would see Max Fish. They would see all the bars in that area. They would just see clips of like nightlife. A handful of blogs provided a lens into this expanding scene. In a broader sense, they'd shaped the way that that generation viewed itself. It was a very ambitious town, New York. I knew when I met Ryan and they were trying to be a scene, emulating what they thought Terry was, but I never thought that was a scene. 
I was like, we're all losers here. And then, oh, that person's doing well. That means nothing. So I never thought that was a scene. Then I thought, oh, wait, you guys thought that was a scene. Scenes aren't really made until later. Only in history are they scenes. Like I'm sure Frank O'Hara and they, they were feeling groovy because they were all hanging out at the bar together and smoking and talking about poetry and art and stuff. But I don't know if they were like, we think of ourselves historically. Like I remember thinking when I met everyone, I was like, oh wait, they're already making things, thinking of themselves and their things as historic. An outlier in his group of art school kids and skaters was Jack Walls, who was over a decade older than the rest of the crew and came with an intriguing backstory. Erudite and intimidating, Walls had met Ryan at a party and swiftly bonded. Through him, Ryan had direct connection to a major artistic legacy. Jack is still my closest friend, and we have probably talked a few times a week on the phone since 1998, and we just have these long conversations, and I think I was just enamored by him because he represented so many things at once. He grew up in the south side of Chicago. He was in gangs and he was in the Navy. And then he came to New York City and met Robert Maplethorpe and became his boyfriend for the last decade of his life. He was painted by Basquiat. He was best friends with Patti Smith. Kind of very masculine, but also like very queer. And he was just like a wealth of knowledge. I still can just listen to him talk forever. Like he just has this really beautiful cadence and this really beautiful way of telling stories. The AIDS epidemic had created a disconnect and alienation between generations of gay men. Through Jack, who was also an artist, Ryan gained an invaluable friend and aesthetic ally and mentor. It helped him in that, through me, he became attached to... Maplethorpe. So his lineage was connected to a part of the past that included my past, right? But it was a whole new and different thing with Ryan. Like, it wasn't like most people that admired Robert, they tried to take pictures like him. And Ryan's whole thing was, his images were as far away from Robert's imagery as you could get, which in a way almost made it equal. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't want to call people's names out, but during the period in the 80s, everybody's photograph tended to look like Roberts. You know what I mean? Like, Bruce Weber and Herb Ritz, they did what Robert did, except they did it better. Better meaning they managed to make it commercial. And so I think Ryan sort of distilled all of that, and he chose to use color. Ryan wasn't afraid of color. He really just taught me about how photographs were made, or at least how Robert made photos. And it was helpful, and he introduced me to people, and that's how I had my first, I guess, DIY show. He was the person who curated it, the one that you were at. This DIY show took place at 420 West Broadway, a hallowed address in the initial Soho art boom. The building had once been home to Leo Castelli, Ileana Sonnabend, and Mary Boone Galleries. Ryan recalls how it all came together. 
I was sneaking in the dark room with my friends that went there. Shaniqua Jarvis was there with me and there was a handful of other photographers and everyone would help me use the enlargers and print these poster size images of my photos. So I had all these prints and nowhere to show them when all the rest of the students at Parsons were having their senior exhibit. I think spite is a big motivator and I was really mad that I couldn't exhibit my photos with my friends. So I was telling Jack and Jack said, oh, you know, our friend Lenart, the building that his dad's space is in is being torn down and becoming a DKNY store. And it's empty right now. And it's just basically a big giant warehouse on West Broadway. So why don't I curate the show and we'll show your images there. The walls were lined with the sprawling chaos and intimacy Ryan had been capturing and living the past two years. It was strange to see the images without distance of time or even anonymity, when even if you didn't know everyone in them, you at least knew who they were and saw them around. It was an ongoing slice of life. No one in the moment realizes that they're in some halcyon era, but this is part of the magic of Ryan. He was fully aware of what he was shooting. Of course, all the people that I went to school with at Parsons were there. All of the kids that I skateboarded with were there. All of the Iraq graffiti crew and other graffiti crews were there. And it just felt just really cool. The opening was really a party. Like people were skateboarding inside the gallery. There was a DJ playing a set inside the gallery. And I just thought that I had arrived. That moment will probably be the most important moment to me personally in my photo career because it was the first time that I put my photos on a wall and said, these are the people I love. This is what I do. This is my artistic practice. All the people in the photographs were there. We were celebrating. And it was like day one. The 420 show ignited downtown buzz beyond Ryan's social group, but he'd generate further interest through self-publishing. I was making a lot of zines. Like I had always made scenes since kind of day one, even before I even was taking photos. It was just part of the practice of like going to Kinko's, putting some cool stuff on the scanner Xerox and making some zines that kind of went into like the music that I listened to, it went into that subculture. I was studying graphic design, so I was, I guess, ahead of the curve with technology, and it was right when negative scanners came out, so I would shoot a lot of film. I would buy it at Adorama Expired for like $2 a roll. Then when I had shot 100 rolls, I would buy a box of paper, 100 sheets, and I would sneak into the Parsons dark room and make contact sheets and then bring them back to my apartment and scan the photos that I thought were cool and then make zines for my friends. And those zines started to like circulate. This led to shooting for publications like Vice and Index, which was one of the all-time great indie magazines. Wolfgang Tillmans, Jürgen Teller, and Bruce LaBruce shot covers. Mark remembers this period and Ryan's ambition. It was deep in the photography history books for him. And Ryan was obsessed with documentaries about artists. 
they would go to Kim's video and there would be stacks of VHS tapes of just different artists' documentaries. And he would watch them all while working because he was a workaholic, not really relaxing, always taking photos. His first book that he made, he made by hand and he would just watch the documentaries and put the book together. He was taking photos for Index magazine and then Vice. So there was sort of a momentum building. You know, photographers hate each other. So you would hear from other photographers, like older photographers. Oh, wow, Ryan's shooting all this stuff. It's like, you know, there's all these other photographers around. And I would say, he wants it more than you do. He just does. He's hungry for it. And most of the people we probably know of wanted it more than people who did it equally as well, or maybe even better. They just wanted it more. You know, the Bob Dylans, the Patti Smiths, they wanted to be notable. And so did Ryan, so did Dan. Dash didn't really, because the flashlight was always on him. But most of the people around him wanted the romantic idea of being a famous artist in New York. And they kind of got it. In 2002, Ryan published a self-titled zine with Index. One of Sylvia Wolfe's colleagues at the Whitney came across the publication. Thinking she'd be intrigued, he left it on her chair. In that first publication, there were things that I saw that I wanted to know more about. And one of the things that I love about contemporary curators is we're always curious. We're wondering what's behind the work that's on view and who is this person and how is this work made and what is it about? And the best way to indulge our curiosity, I guess, which is really part of our job, is to go and meet the artists and learn from them firsthand. I do remember vividly, he was on a fifth floor walk up. I remember the stairs. He had three roommates. I think two people were sleeping on couches at the same time. And then there was this electrifying, genuine, real person who pulled a box of 20 by 24 prints from a recent show he had had out from under his bed. So there was no studio. I met him in his bedroom and began looking at photographs. And then there were hundreds of Polaroids on his wall. And then there were other works that he started to show me. She sat in a folding chair and I literally pulled out photos from under my bed in Kodak boxes and Epson printouts. And she said, what are you doing, you know, right now? And I said, well, I'm doing this series where I puke on my camera. And she was like, that's interesting. Let me see it. And then I just showed her all these photos of me puking on the Yushika T4. And I said, I'm bringing people to Coney Island in the middle of the night and I'm doing a bathers series. And she said, let me see those. I showed her those. And I said, I have all these Polaroids. I literally have like 5,000 Polaroids here. And she looked through all of them. And I said, there's a bar called The Cock that sometimes I take my friends to and I have a mini trampoline and I have them jump in front of this like cool graffiti wall. And I showed her those. And I showed her lots of photos of me and Mark and just like our love affair. And just, I said, this is my boyfriend. And, you know, I photograph him every day. And First of all, he had this incredible capacity to capture all kinds of conditions of light and to compose. I wondered plenty of times, well, he must have been just as high as the person he's photographing. How did he get to make this composition that's so elegant and beautiful at the same time? There's something about the magic of his inquiry, I guess, 
and the willingness and the trust of his subjects in the act of making a photograph, which they were doing together most of the time, unless, of course, somebody's passed out. There were a few of those. There's an understanding. Ryan wouldn't take those pictures if he didn't know that his friends saw him take pictures all the time and they were in it with him and he was in it with them. And that speaks to that cusp, I think, of a period when people of that age in their early 20s were identifying and creating identities for themselves in a variety of different fashions, whether it's through their behavior, through their dress, or through their making of photographs with someone as gifted at doing so as Ryan is. I think that for me, especially the photos in New York City from... 1998 to 2003, it was just like celebrating my friends. And it was about just being carefree and just like street energy and adventure. Like that was like the fun thing, especially about like being a skater and a graffiti writer and just hanging out with people. The adventures were so exciting. To really have time on the street at night is really special. I mean, it's still special to me in New York. And I think it's special to everybody where you really feel like it's late and nobody's really out and you kind of own a piece of the city and it's just quiet. That was when I made like almost all of my photos, you know, and it was like, we were just these young kids that were just out and gallivanting just on rooftops in bathrooms, running into the subway tunnel is the craziest thing. And like, we just did it all the time. I wasn't sure whether there was a show there. I just wanted to know more about him, and he was completely open to it. The decision to do a show came a little bit later on after more conversation. The Eureka moment wasn't the book. The book was the teaser, if you will. The book was, boy, who is this person? What's going on here? It wasn't until multiple visits and looking at, I don't even know how many hundreds of little eight and a half by 11 inch printouts that he made of negatives that he was scanning on his computer in his bedroom again, that I began to think, okay, wait a minute, there's not just a handful of good pictures here. There's an eye, there's an attitude, there's an evolution of a genre of photography in the history of photography that's really fresh and now. Wolf selected about 35 images. There was blood, sweat, and semen but there was also clear emotional resonance. A particularly impactful image is Sam Ground Zero, where Ryan's friend is on his BMX at the epicenter after the towers fell on 9-11. Ryan casually captured the human condition. The photos were decadent, but not nihilistic. If you're going to embrace Ryan, you've got to embrace the full body of work. There's also this, I would say, rawness about some of the pictures that he took that I wanted to make sure had presence in the exhibition. There was one photograph of a male, unclothed, sitting on a chair with his hand gently holding a very large erection, looking straight at the camera. That's one we had conversation about in our curatorial team. No one ever questioned whether or not it should or should not be in the show, but really we were talking about why it was important, what it was about it that was significant. That frontal gaze, it's not the frontal nudity, the frontal gaze of the subject engaging with the photographer was what made it so that that's all you could look at were the eyes in spite of the other material in the photograph. The opening itself was quite a revelation, actually. I think there was a line around the block. One of Ryan's colleagues enthusiastically came up and asked me if I was his mother, and I was really touched by that. 
The Whitney after party was of course epic, but the come down for everything was inevitable. It was years of hardcore partying and processing the trauma of living downtown during 9-11. The drugs were working and then they weren't. Probably 2002 or three after Afghanistan or during, it was the heroin started to come back and everyone started to do it in a light way, in a light way where you could almost be like, guess where I went last night? downtown and everyone at brunch would be like <laughs> don't do that you know it's almost like so casual everyone at the table was serious when they said don't do that but it was so around like the whole scene was emulating what they thought other scenes were they were romanticizing other scenes but all the other scenes like it was jackson pollock being drunk they're wild it's larry clark they're doing heroin you look at a Nan Golden, they're seeing all these images, and Terry Richardson, they're all wasted. So they think the wasted thing is making life interesting. And it is making it interesting because it's harder <laughs> when you're wasted all the time. But it's feeding the romantic idea of the scene that they want to belong to. They probably really are actually trying to belong to the scene before, but in the doing so, they sort of are making one. I think, I guess, if you hang out with the same people for long enough, it is kind of a scene. Jack had seen talent before, but he'd also seen downfall. It looks easy to do. Because you see people, oh, let's go out and get drunk, and let's take pictures of each other pissing. But they don't get that that lifestyle wasn't staged. It was so raw. To be honest with you, though, know, it was a little bit too raw for me after a while. I mean, if you notice, Towards like in the thick of things, my whole thing was like, don't photograph me because I didn't want pictures of me snorting coke all over the world because they were really into that. And I said, listen, if we're in a bar, that's one thing. But when everybody's sitting around and half naked, I said, listen, I'm Jack Walls. My picture is like in museums. I can't be seen doing this with these like ragamuffins. <laughs> At one point, it got so bad, it was like, I can't be seen with them. No, really. And I wasn't being a snob. At that point, it was like self-preservation. That's how bad it got. I was like, no, they're completely out of control. And then, like, the heroin thing started seeping in. And I had already been through that in the the 80s. And I was like, well, they're young. Let them do it because I'm not doing it with them. Nope. And I'm not responsible. And I used to get on them all the time about that shit. I would be like, stop doing, what are you doing? You know, I used to be up their ass about doing heroin. Fortunately, one of Ryan's mentors stepped in, the photographer and filmmaker Larry Clark. As a sober person now, my job in life is to help fucked up artists who are addicts and like help them get clean. And that is what Larry Clark did for me. He was around after my first show, we hung out. He was interested in our group. I think that he was making movies like Bully. He had made kids already. I think there was an interest in sort of like Kunle, Dash, and I, and just like this idea of queerness and skating. So he was around, and he was spending time with us. And at a certain point, he sat me and Dash down, and he said, you guys are going to die. And... I do this thing, I meet up with a group of people, and we support each other in staying clean and sober. 
and do you want to come and check this thing out? I just thought Larry was so cool, you know. I would have done anything, so I went with him. It was cool. Like, I got to see that there was people out there that were fashionable, that it didn't look like the veterans society. Like I imagined people staying clean and sober together, sort of looking like a VA or something like my dad and his friends. And it planted a seed. I didn't continue to stay clean, but it definitely planted a seed. And like kind of after that, I knew that I needed to regulate how I was like living my life. Of course, up until that point, so many other people had told me that I needed to get it together, my family in particular. I just couldn't hear it from them. It just fell on deaf ears. And it just took somebody who was cool that I really looked up to that cared about me and wanted me to stay alive. In 2009, one of Ryan's closest friends, Dash Snow, died from an overdose just as his career was taking off. In 2004, Ryan followed the Whitney with a solo show at MoMA PS1 that hinted at a creative pivot. His methodology would have to change. So I had the exhibition at the Whitney and everyone knew who I was. That was it. I wasn't a fly on the wall photographer anymore. I wasn't anonymous. I was recognized so much for having that show and had a lot of exposure and I was just like, this is it. This is like my five-year chunk. I can no longer make these photos anymore. I have documented my community. There's other people that I have seen document downtown over the years, and I don't know what else I can contribute anymore. You know, I split. I left, like I left New York. I started doing my road trips. Ryan began assembling a troop and embarking on annual two to three month summer road trips across America. He did this for a decade. The results would be part Kerouac, part fairy tale, an endless family vacation with rotating siblings. His new direction leaned away from squalor and into utopia. The photography critic Vincelletti has remained a fan. I'm not going to say everything he's done since then has been an amazing success for me, but it's been so varied, and it isn't like he just kept going back to those same friends and photographing kids again and again. He really had the sense that he needed to work you know, in a sort of broader way and figure out how to keep making it fresh for himself, which I don't think every photographer is smart enough to do. He was clearly smart enough at the very beginning to know that he had to constantly change, if not for his audience, for himself. I mean, I think he understood that he couldn't keep going back to this group of friends and photographing them making graffiti. He had to do something that either struck out from that or that took it deeper. It's been two decades since the Seminole Whitney exhibition. In 2017, he revisited the images at the Museum of Contemporary Art, Denver. So the original show was called The Kids Are All Right. And then 
I just switched the wording on it and wrote the kids were all right. Because like I said, it was like fun, fun with problems and then just problems. And sadly, a lot of people passed away just in the Iraq crew alone out of like 10 people, five people died of heroin overdoses and suicides. We lost Sam's area, Kent, Sace, and then a lot of people that were adjacent to the crew. I had an exhibition at the MCA Denver. I was able to pull all of my Polaroids together. No one had ever seen the Polaroids up until that point and scan them and archive them and then go through the photographs that were at the show on West Broadway and the show at the Whitney and then more and really make like a really beautiful book with Rizzoli. You must just still have a stockpile that hasn't been seen though from this whole period of life. Yeah, my archive is vast. I would like to do an Iraq book. It's something that Kunle and I are working on because there's just such a strong surplus of images that I have of everybody from that crew basically painting and amazing portraits of them. And then it would also be like a really good memorial to a lot of the people that we lost. Ryan has navigated the commercial realm as much as the art world. He had a long affiliation with the now-defunct Team Gallery, and he wrapped a show at the Baldwin Gallery in Denver in February 2023. He's shot celebrities for Vogue and the New York Times Magazine, as well as campaigns for brands like Calvin Klein. His priorities have shifted since the seminal Whitney exhibition. And now at 20 years, I think it's important for me to be a person that just has the knowledge that is able to help younger artists like people did for me, like Jack Walls did for me, or George Pitts, or Jack Pearson, or Larry Clark. I think that it's just for me to be a soundboard for young photographers or young people struggling with addiction and just to like recognize it and just say like, hey, this is what I did. Like, this is how I navigated that. That's like important to me now in terms of two decades. That's it for this week's episode. Special thanks to Ryan McGinley, Mark Hunley, Vince Aletti, Jack Walls, and Sylvia Wolf. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, take a moment to rate and review us. It will help other listeners discover what we're doing. The Art Angle is produced by Sonia Manalili, Caroline Goldstein, and Tim Schneider. Thanks for listening and see you next week. 